our reading at verse 2 and then read through verse 16 of this chapter. First Corinthians 11, beginning at verse 2, what we hear now is God's Word. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for the wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor to the churches of God. Here we end the reading of God's holy word. When we began this series on 1 Corinthians a number of months ago, I considered at that time uh, ending the series at chapter 11, verse 1. There's a natural break in the book. And after this past week, working with that, this text, perhaps I should have taken my own advice and ended the series at 11 verse 1. But we're not going to stop there. We're going to go on to this next section of Paul's letter, 11 verse 2 through chapter 14. And these chapters deal with matters related to worship. Uh, chapter 11, in the beginning, we'll talk about the role of women in worship. The second half of the chapter, talking about the place of the Lord's Supper in worship. And then chapters 11, excuse me, 12 and 13 and 14 about spiritual gifts, and particularly about speaking in tongues and the place that that has in worship. Tonight, we enter this section by, by talking about women in worship. This is a beautiful, wonderful, 
but incredibly difficult text. It is difficult not only to know what it means, it is difficult to know what it says. The first step in understanding a text and how to apply it is what do the words mean? What is the text? What do the words on the page mean? And that's why I encourage you this afternoon to read this text in various translations. Because if you did that, you know this text has been translated in a variety of ways. Different translations make different interpretive choices. And so I have, I hope, humbly uh, suggested for you tonight a translation of this text, which I believe was handed out before the service, and it's a, a stylized uh, version of this text which tries to give you uh, a little more, we might say, a behind-the-scenes view of what this text is like. Uh, it's not a, a completely original translation with me. It is an adapted, a, a, an altered translation uh, from Dr. Gordon Fee, and I've highlighted a couple things he did not to hopefully make this text more understandable for us. When we talk about what does a text say, uh, we have to make certain exegetical choices. And, and as you do that in a text, you come across, uh, we might say, uh, a pivot point where you say, okay, either I'm going to say the text means and says this and go this way, or it means and says this and go this way. And then as you go down either one of those paths, you will come to other decision branches. And, and the fact that you chose to go one way will by definition mean there are a whole set of choices you will not consider because you've, you've decided this is the text. And this is what it says, and this is what it means. And as you go down that road, you continue down that road. And certain choices are left out. I have tried to very carefully and prayerfully go down those decision choices in this text in the past week. I want to first of all say tonight, this is going to be a little different sermon than normal. It's going to be a little bit more of a didactic sermon than normal. We will get to application, not only what the text says, but what it means for us. But to know what it means, we have to know what it says. Now, you may disagree with some of my exegetical choices. And I have to be honest. I have not been happy with some of the choices that I have made. Not because I think that they're wrong, but because they led me to understand this text in a different way than what I thought it said. And I've had that before. When you think a text says one thing, and you begin to look at it very carefully, and dissect it, and take it apart, and put it back together, and you see it says something different than you thought. And so uh, I say, you may disagree with some of the choices I have made in the understanding of what this text says and therefore what it means, but I hope 
if you do disagree, it is based on your exegetical study of the text and not just what you've heard someone say at one time. It's a beautiful text. It's a wonderful text. It's a deep and rich text, but it takes some work to get into it. As I said, I've given you something of a stylized outline of this text. There are a couple different things we're going to point out. You'll see that on this, uh, this uh, outline I've given to you, the word head occurs in bold. Sometimes it occurs in all capital letters, and sometimes it occurs in lowercase letters. When it occurs in all capital letters, I am suggesting the word head there is being used as a metaphor. When it occurs in lowercase letters, it's being used literally, this thing on my shoulders, my head. And there are a couple times where I was not sure which it was, and so you see both of them on the page. The underlined words you will see have to do with being covered or being uncovered, and we'll talk about what that means in the text. I want to begin by really giving you the ending. I want to tell you right up front what Paul's point is, so you do not get lost, because we're going to talk about some technical things. I want you to know what Paul's point is right away. Paul's point in this text is that men and women were created differently. And although both are redeemed in Christ, both find their life only in Him, not every difference between men and women is done away with when they recognize Jesus Christ. Men and women still have different and distinct roles to play in the worship of God. We may not break down the distinction between male and female roles just because we are all saved by Christ. Paul will say there still is a difference in the way that we come to worship. He will argue that point by way of analogy in verses 1 through 6, by way of creation in verses 7 through 12, and a very short argument by propriety in verses 11 through 15. I guess even before we get into that, if you look at the translation that I have given you and the translation that I read, um, in the translation which I read, verse 3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband. Now that's an interpretive choice. The head of a wife is her husband. There is one word used for man consistently through this text. Not one word for man and one word for husband. There's one word for man used consistently through this text. There is one word for woman used consistently through this text. Not a word for woman and a word for wife, but the same word is used throughout. And, and Paul here, I do not believe, is making a statement on husband-wife relationships. He will deal with that elsewhere. Here, he is talking about the general relationship between men and women in the church. That is his point. And so when our text says uh, the head of a wife is her husband, that is an interpretive choice. 
And so on the, on the interpretation I have given to you, uh, you will find it simply says man and woman throughout. doesn't make reference to husband and wife because I do not believe that is Paul's point in this text. There's elsewhere he'll make that point, the proper relationship of husband and wife, but not here, not in this text. So, verse 3. I want you to understand <clears throat> that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So the first question we have to ask is, what does head mean? What does it mean that a woman, uh, the head of a woman is a man, and the head of Christ is God? Well, I think it's fairly obvious. You don't have to know Greek or anything. It's fairly obvious. Paul is not talking here about a literal head. It's not a literal head he's talking about. When he says the head of every man is Christ, it's a picture. It's a metaphor. Again, that's why I've used that in bold on the outline I have given to you. It's a metaphor. Well, that leads to the next question. What is the metaphor? What's the picture Paul is drawing when he says the head of every man is Christ, the head of a woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God? There have been a couple different suggestions that have been given as to what the metaphor means. Uh, some suggest the metaphor of head means ruler, a ruler. We use that term today when we talk about someone being a head of state. They are a ruler over the state. I do not believe that is Paul's use here for the simple reason that the phrase head of state is a modern phrase. It's not a Greek phrase. It's not something Paul would make reference to. They did not use the word that way to speak about a ruler. Some have suggested the word head here means authority. That the Man is an authority over the woman. I want to be very clear. I believe there is in Scripture a very clear laying out of the authority structure in the home between a husband and a wife. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not focusing on the husband-wife relationship. He's focusing on the man-woman relationship in worship in general. In fact, the idea of authority, of authority in this text, only comes up in verse 10. Verse 10, which I think is probably the key to this text. Verse 10, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. That's the only other reference to authority in this text. So I do not believe that the metaphor of head is a metaphor of authority. When Paul uses the picture of head, the picture he is giving us is the picture of source. The source. And we use that phrase today. We talk about the headwaters of a river. That's the source of the river. They would use that same expression. That was an expression known to them. He's talking about source. What comes from what? And that fits what we have in the text. Verse 8, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. That is source language. 
Verse 12, for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. That is source language. What comes from what? And so when Paul uses the metaphor of head, he's talking about source. What do we read then in verse 3? I want you to understand the head, the source of every man is Christ. He is pulling in creation-type language, which he will do elsewhere in this text. That Christ, in his role in creation, is the source of every man, every woman who was ever created. He is the source. He says, the source of a woman is man. Again, creation language. Kids, you remember that she was taken from him. Man is the source of woman, which he will reference in this text. And the source of Christ is God. But isn't God co-equal, co-eternal? How can we say the source of Christ is God? Paul is here speaking, recognizing not the I hate to use this word, ontological, the being unity of God, but the economic, the working unity of God. We say that the Son is begotten of the Father. The Father is the source of the Son. Now, what is the point? What is the the, the practical implication? That if we come from different sources, we have different roles different roles to play in worship. That's Paul's point. Men will have a role to play and women will have a role to play and it will be different because they have a different head. They have a different source. He says in verse 4, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And if that were the extent of the use of the word covered, this would be a very easy uh, text to translate. Because while it doesn't technically say covered, what it says, children, is every man has hanging down from his head. When he prays, he has hanging down from his head. Well, what is it that hangs down from your head, kids? Well, not me so much. What is it that hangs down from your head? It's your hair. Paul's talking about hair here. A man being covered, having hair. Now, verse 5, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's the same as if her head were shaven. And I've tried to point that out on the sheet that I gave you. It's not as if in verse 4 we have the word covered and verse 5 the word uncovered. It's a completely different word. So we can't say, look, verse 4 refers to hair, and so verse 5 must refer to hair as well. What does it mean for a woman to pray or prophesy uncovered? Well, there have been some that have suggested what this means is very clear. It's very obvious. She has to wear something on her head. She has to have a veil of some sort. In fact, in my Bible, I don't know about your Bible, in my Bible, the heading of this chapter, this section, is head coverings. That's what my Bible is, head coverings. The trouble is, the word for veil, hat, cap, anything like that, 
isn't in the text. There is no reference to what we would call a head covering, a hat, a cap, a veil, anything like that. That is foreign to this text. It's just not there. Some have suggested that what this text means to be uncovered, and there is a linguistic connection between the word unbounded. A woman is unbounded. And the suggestion is that when a woman goes to worship, her hair should be done up, and if it is unbounded, if it is let down, that is improper. And while linguistically it's a possibility, it flies in the face of the end of the text. The end of the text in verse 15 says, if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. It's a blessing for her. So why earlier would Paul say, look, if it's, if it's unbounded, if it's down, it somehow dishonors her. Whatever it meant for a woman to be uncovered, it was something that she did deliberately, and it was something that brought shame. It was something that broke down the distinction of men and women in worship. So if we cannot exactly say what that uncovered versus covered is, it's okay. We know what Paul's point was. It was a deliberate act that brought shame and that broke down the distinction between men and women in worship. Paul goes on to argue his point, this time from creation, verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of God. Of man. Again, once, once again, Paul pulls in creation type language. Man in the image of God, man being the glory of God. Now, what Paul's point is in worship, God must be the one who receives the glory. And since man is his image, is his glory, he may worship uncovered. That brings glory to God. But, he says, woman is the glory of man. And therefore, if she should be uncovered, she would bring glory to man, not to God. She would exalt man's glory, not God's. And so, she should be covered, that God might receive the proper glory and praise in worship. And Paul makes his point in verse 10. That is why, this is the point, the, the heart of the passage. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. A wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Now, again, our text says wife. I suggest it should be woman. And the words symbol of don't find themselves in the text. That is an interpretive choice that our translator has made. What it says more literally is a woman ought to have authority over her head. 
not a symbol of, a woman ought to have authority over her head. And some people have said, well, look, what that means is that she is to have someone in authority over her, an authority over her head, someone who is her authority, which is why our text makes the choice of saying husband and wife, because a husband certainly is the authority over his wife. The problem is, this phrase that someone has authority over someone else, this phrase is never used that way in the New Testament. That someone else have authority over her when these words are used. This phrase is used 103 times in the New Testament. It never means that. It's used in the Septuagint. It never means that. It's used in the Church Fathers. It never means that. What it means is she is to have authority over her own head. And that's the translation I've given to you. A woman ought to have authority over her own head. But again, we ask the question, what does that mean? She has authority over her own head. I suggest we use Paul to interpret Paul. It's a good principle of exegesis. Use the author to interpret himself. He knows how he wants the words used. And Paul used this phrase, have authority over, back in chapter 8, verse 9. We looked at that a couple weeks ago about uh, the particular rights we have. And in chapter 8, verse 9, he says this, But take care that this right of yours does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Well, that looks like a very different set of words than what we have in our verse. But this right of yours is the same word as have authority over. I would suggest what Paul is saying here is a woman is to have the right to worship as God has called her to worship. That right is not an, uh, an unbounded right that she can do whatever she wants, just like back in chapter 8. It's a, it's a right circumscribed by love and care for others. But she has the right to come to worship, and, and, and she has the freedom to worship as God intended. And that's Paul's point, that men will worship as men, and women will worship as women. That's Paul's consistent point throughout this text. Nevertheless, the woman ought to have authority, the right over her own head, over herself, to come and to worship God as a woman. This verse ends with that uh, small phrase, because of the angels. I have no idea what that means. I, I have looked at many commentaries, and I have heard, read, understand the various options that are available to us, but at the end of the day, every commentator I read says, we just don't know what that means, so I am in the company of the ignorant uh, when it comes to that phrase. But whatever it was, they knew what it meant. They must know what it meant. We don't know what it means, but they knew what it meant. Paul concludes this part of the argument, verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. 
For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are of God. Paul is saying men and women belong together. They are both creations of God. They are one in Jesus Christ. They are redeemed by his blood. They have the same forgiveness of their sins. But that does not break down all distinctions between them. Men are still men and women are still women. Being one in Christ doesn't mean being absolutely the same in Christ. There are those who take a text like Galatians 3, verse 28, and make that the lens through which they read everything else in Scripture. Galatians 3, 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Absolutely, amen. We are one in Christ Jesus when it comes to our redemption, our salvation. We find ourselves in Him. But that doesn't mean every distinction is gone. Yes, it is that same one way of salvation that we, we, we preach again tonight. For men, for women, for boys, for girls, there's one way of salvation. Put your faith in Jesus Christ and know His forgiving blood shed for you. But that doesn't mean we're all the same now. Paul very quickly draws his argument to the close. In fact, this last argument is almost kind of trails off. Uh, he says in verse 13, Judge for yourselves, is it proper, argument from propriety, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Well, he has just said, no, it's not. So he expects a negative answer. He says, does not even the nature itself teach you if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace to him. If a woman has long hair, it is her glory. He talks about the proper nature of things, the way things tend to go. He's not giving commands here regarding the length of hair. So women, if your hair is short, uh, Paul is not commanding you to grow it long. Uh, men, if your hair is long, he's not commanding you to make it short. He's saying this is typically how things go. That there's a difference, a noticeable difference. Men tend to have shorter hair. Women tend to have longer hair. There's a difference that needs to continue to be manifest even in worship. Now, that, that must have taken a particular cultural form in Corinth. We may not be able to exactly identify what form that took, but the principle behind the form the principle behind the reality is still the reality for us. Each is to worship God according to their nature. Men as men and women as women. And that seems so obvious to us. Why would, why would we go through a half hour of exegesis just to get to that very obvious point? It needs to be said because the world will say the exact opposite. We are all the same. There is no distinction. Men, women, doesn't matter. Everybody can do everything. Flies exactly in the face of what Paul is teaching us in 1 Corinthians 11. There is a distinction. A proper distinction. 
a distinction that is a blessing not only for men but for women. They have the blessing, the freedom, the authority to come to worship, if I can put it this way, as a woman. Women don't think you have to come to worship and act like a man. You know, you know. We hear things differently. We respond to things differently. God has given us different roles to do. Don't think you have to change who you are. When you come to worship, worship as a woman. A woman sanctified by Christ. A woman who desires to love Him and serve Him, just as the men need to do. We must not break down the distinctions. We must not, in doing so, deliberately bring shame upon ourselves and shame upon our head, Jesus Christ. When we fail to recognize the distinctions, the differences God has made and remain when we gather in His presence to worship Him. We are all called to worship for His glory. Men called to worship as men. Women called to worship as women. When we seek to break down those distinctions, we bring shame upon Christ's church. We bring shame upon Christ himself. God has made us different, and we thank him for that. And those differences, although we are one in Christ because of his redeeming blood, those differences continue so that both men and women, as they come to worship, may bring glory to God. Let's join together in prayer. Lord our God, we thank you for your word. It is a beautiful word. It is a rich word. Sometimes, Lord God, it's a challenging word. And, and we have to look deeply to see what is the truth you are giving to us there. We pray that tonight you would have spoken to us through this word. Through this word that reminds us of the distinctions which you have put in place. Help us, Lord God, to fulfill each of our callings as men, as women, as boys, and as girls. That when we worship, we gather not for our glory, but for your glory. We gather not to do things our way, but to do things your way. Help us, Lord God, to, to be instructed by your word, to be ever corrected by your word, and to be drawn deeper into your word, that you might receive the praise which you so deserve. Hear us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen.